Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, we are going to talk once again with Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. We've been discussing this for two years now, whether the pandemic is finally over. And also going to be talking about some of the medical conditions that you might have that might make your symptoms of COVID worse should you contract it, whether you have a booster or not. Also going to be talking with Dr. Vivian Brown, who is going to educate us about preventing cancer through a vaccine for men, women, girls, and boys. We've got some other great and exciting health subjects to talk about tonight as well. So uh, thanks so much for tuning in to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. I know you all think that the pandemic is over, but it is far from over. And in fact, I'm seeing in my small, teeny little world, I am seeing evidence of an uptick. And you probably are hearing about that on the news as well. Well, joining me on the line once again to talk about this subject in particular, is COVID finished, is Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. Of course, you've heard his voice before. He studies emerging and re-emerging viruses, and that might be what we have here. He's an assistant professor at the Max Rady College of Medicine at the University of Manitoba. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. Good evening. I listen. I, I wish this was all over as well, so people didn't have to hear me <laughs> keep on talking about it. But we're we're still in the thick of it. <laughs> we are still in the thick of it, aren't we? I mean, I think people don't want to hear me talking about it. <laughs> They'd rather hear you, <laughs> for sure. Uh, at least you know about it. I mean, I deal with a lot of people who are, you know, it's just one myth after another. How this vaccine hasn't been studied long enough. Nobody's going to force me. Joe Biden said this, Justin Trudeau said that. I mean, it's just outrageous. But, you know, we have had this message, I mean, a mixed message, but, you know, things are better. A lot of people are vaccinated. Omicron provided some herd immunity. And so people are more comfortable. The restrictions have been lifted. There are concerts happening again, weddings happening again, parties happening again. And cases happening again, quite frankly. We look to the UK and China, and also we see upticks in the rate of transmissions in a rate of transmission in many cities across North America. What are your thoughts on the uh, pandemic? Is COVID over? Shall we just all open up and not worry about a thing? Oh, you know, I wish we were at that point. Uh, listen, I, you know, there, there's there's this appreciation that we need to have about about being precautionary, right? So we, we've gone through two years of having to deal with a pandemic and, and watching the trials and tribulations as, as things have played out. Um, I, I look at this period now and say, listen, this is probably not the time for us to uh, to just assume everything is normal and, and certainly uh, not uh, not starting to have the, the victory parade uh, until we know what we're dealing with. Because frankly, we, we've done this before. We've done this, I think, probably nearly after every variant uh, that uh, that that is kind of you know rolled through. Um, we we've said okay yeah it looks like this is going to be the you know the the ending point and and I think you know we're we're moving ahead and and lo and behold we've seen something else that has hit us. So I, to me we, we we have made progress. We are certainly in a different position than we we were in 2020 and and frankly even after Delta. The question is what is that position that we're in and how much uh, room can we give the virus to to wiggle right now? before we start to see an uptick. And even if we see an uptick in cases, 
what does that mean in regards to hospitalizations and certainly in regards to to those that that remain vulnerable to the virus there, there are a lot of unknowns and i think that's the difficulty is as much as we've learned we are still trying to figure out okay what does a post omicron world look like and, and and frankly there there's no blueprint to tell us what that is going to be now, is there a post-COVID world? It's not looking to <laughs> non-COVID in places no. like China with their lockdowns and uh, the economic costs of a, a zero-COVID policy, and and not to mention the UK. And in in, in years, you know, now we're into two years, but in times past, yeah. you know, we would look to the UK, and then we know a few weeks later it's going to hit the US. We were taken by surprise a little bit by Omicron. Uh, so what's uh, what are your thoughts on what it's going to be like in the U.S. and Canada? Well, it's a good question, right? So I, I think the big thing is, is we, we are going to see an uptick, right? So as soon as you start removing restrictions, especially when you have a, a variant that's as transmissible as Omicron, and certainly with what we've seen with BA2, we, we know that there is going to be some increase in transmission because we still have people that are either unvaccinated or, or people that have uh, you know waning immunity or only two doses, that, that are in our communities. So when you factor all of that in, we, we know that there's going to be some amount of, uh, of transmission that's going to occur. The question is, how much are we going to see? And I, I don't think we know. We can, we can glean some information from Europe. Um, certainly when we look at vaccination rates and, and population dynamics, there, there are similarities that we can look at and say, okay, um, what, what do we expect to see? Um, China is a bad example for us right now because of the policies that they had in place with, with certainly with their zero po- uh, COVID policies, but also in, even in regards to the vaccine that they were using. And then, of course, the low vaccination rate uh, within uh, the, uh, the, the elderly population. It, they are, I think, a word of warning for why vaccination is so important. Um, but Europe right now is giving us an indication. I, I think this is where I get in this precautionary side and say, listen, I, I think we, we can remove some restrictions, but we also have to complement that with increased surveillance in the community. If we're not doing that, if we're not ensuring that we understand what transmission looks like, if we're only relying on hospitalization, then we know that that's a lagging indicator. And of course, by that point, transmission's already increased. And now you've got to try and clamp down and get things under control. So, you know, it, it's, a very, it's a very difficult time. Um, I think it's, it's being left up to us as individuals to, to make decisions and behavioral decisions that are best. Um, but that's not always easy. We don't all have the uh, the ability to do a risk assessment and, and understand where we are in, in our communities. Now, it, it, as China locks down, is it fair enough to say that the UK is living with COVID, although they have an exorbitant amount of cases right now? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question, right? So, I mean, when we talk about living with COVID, it becomes this question of what what is living with COVID? And, and I think... You know, there, there was a, an article that just came out in, in Science Magazine about, uh, about this idea of what, what things may look like on an annual basis for, for COVID. And I, I certainly recommend people to, to take a look at it because it talks about, you know, based on data we're seeing right now, what, what would we see for cases and, and fatalities across different areas of the world? Uh, we, we don't know what it's going to look like. And I think, to me, that's where we need to take a step back and say, okay, we already live in, you know, to be frank, a, a post-influenza world in terms of post-pandemic influenzas. Um, but what, what do we see on a yearly basis? And now if we take COVID, can we you know, realistically add COVID to that list? 
and still be able to, uh, to, to provide the same amount of hospital, uh, hospital care and health care we do to the population without seeing any sort of, uh, of suffering uh, for, for people being able to get in and, and, and get, uh, get proper care. So these are all the factors that we talk about living with COVID. We need to, frankly, be, be really damn sure that we're ready to, uh, to, to understand and understand that it's still a very fluid situation. My guest is a, is a very familiar voice that you've been hearing now for at least a year, maybe a couple of years, Dr. <laughs> Jason Kinderchuk. <laughs> he has a PhD. He's an assistant professor and holds a Canada research chair as well in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the Max Rady College of Medicine at the University of Manitoba. Thanks so much, Dr. Kinderchuk, for staying on the line with me. So in my work, I come across a lot of people who have had their primary series of a vaccination. They've had the mRNA vaccine, the Pfizer or the Moderna, or they've had the J&J, but all of a sudden they become anti-vaxxers, if you will. They are not getting the booster. They start, they give me things like, um, this vaccine wasn't, wasn't tested enough. And people, and after they've already had the primary series, keep that in mind, <laughs> or they will say um, they got so sick from their vaccine yep. side effects that their doctor has recommended that they not get the booster. Or they say that, um, you know, they don't know what they're putting into their bodies and it doesn't work anyway because so many people have gotten COVID who have been boosted. So what are your thoughts on those vaxxed anti-vaxxers with all due respect to the vaxxed anti-vaxxers? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's a complex situation, right? I, I think a big part of it, quite honestly, is, is born out of exhaustion. Uh, and, and I say that mm-hmm. quite openly. I, we're all exhausted with COVID. I think that it's been, you know, realistically, you know, information overload for, for the better part of just over two years. Um, I think that, you know, we, we all feel like in some way we now understand this virus and what it's doing, but we're also all very tired of hearing about it. Um, and, and certainly I think that there was a, a really big kind of celebratory feeling after the announcement of the vaccines, the first, you know, certainly the, the Pfizer vaccine and then slowly after that Moderna, um, once those got authorized and started moving out to the public, there was this feeling that, okay, the pandemic now is absolutely going to change. Now, from, from my perspective, and, and I, think, I, I think a lot of people in, in biomedical research and, and healthcare would argue that the face of the pandemic absolutely changed after the vaccines came out. And I think mm-hmm. that's the difficult part is that we don't necessarily, as a, as a public, maybe appreciate how things would have looked if we didn't have the vaccines. But frankly, for a lot of people, you have you know, variant after variant after variant that's emerged. We've seen you know, wave after wave. We've seen more people getting infected. And of course, with Omicron, you know, many people now have heard of friends and family that have gotten infected. There's this probably this feeling of, well, why have I been cheated? Why, you know, why didn't the vaccines change this as much as I expected? I think that's a big part of it. Um, and, uh, you know, again, it goes back to this idea of saying, what did we expect from the vaccines? Um, did we expect that they were going to change the phase of hospitalization and severe disease and, and save lives? If yes, then absolutely they did an amazing job. Was it to completely block infect, infection and, and, and block transmission? Uh, listen, we're not dealing with the same variant that emerged. So if the vaccines uh, had only been, uh, you know, had to face um, that, that original ancestral strain, maybe we would have seen a more significant effect. But right after the vaccines uh, got authorized, we saw alpha, then, of course, beta, gamma, delta, and omicron. Um, that changed the nature of all of this. And, and I think what we're watching in real time is what viruses do very well, which is they change and they changed randomly. 
Um, and when they have a wide swath of the population across the globe to be able to move to that, that do not have them, uh, that underlying immunity, they continue on and on and on. Um, and our only way of countering this is to continue to try to, uh, to, to throw everything we can to stop transmission. Because, again, if we look at, you know, we kind of go back to this idea of 6 million recorded deaths for, for uh, COVID-19 so far, and probably somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 18 million, I think is what people have, have started to estimate. If you compare that back to 1918 flu, 50 to 100 million people died. Um, that's 100 years ago. So in spite of all the medical advances we've had, in spite of antibiotics, and in spite of supportive care treatments and ventilation standards, in spite of all of that, plus vaccines, we still have you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of six to 18 million people that have died. It's been a horrible pandemic. So the vaccines have provided us with a lot, but they cannot do everything on their own. And that's where we come in and have to make good choices to try and, and, and really amp up the, uh, the, the added benefit to, to try and, and get this under control. I think what the pandemic has done as well is to raise awareness about infection transmission, you know, transmissions of these viruses for a lot of people. And, you know, you mentioned that you were tired of it and I'm tired of it too, but I have to say, I, uh, I have benefited tremendously from a health perspective. I tend toward allergies. I have not had allergies since I've been wearing a mask. I tend toward respiratory infections because I see so many patients of all ages (laughs) in my office who don't care if they're sick and they come in and um, I have not had that. I've done a lot more virtual yeah. work and I've, you know, I've decreased the number of patients that I see physically and in person. And also we're all wearing masks. So I have been well since March 11th, 2020. <laughs> I've been doing great. <laughs> I used to get three respiratory infections a year and no, yeah. I have none of it. So although I'm tired of the pandemic, I'm really not tired of wearing a mask because, and I actually feel naked now without it. Um, but you know, and I, I do, honestly, I feel like I'm missing something and, you know, I can count on my hand the times, you know, on one hand, the times that I have forgotten my mask over, over two years, but you feel, you know, all of a sudden like a panic yeah. almost, you know, so, I mean, it's so important and I'm not the only person I've spoken to other people like that, but had we been better at globally vaccinating people, would we have seen less death? I, I undoubtedly, right. And that's, I think the, the thing that we don't appreciate is the undercounting of, of fatalities, right? You know, somebody who, who was in West Africa during Ebola, we know that there are undercounting of, of, of fatalities during that epidemic. We know that this is an issue in, in low and middle income regions, plus even in high income regions of undercounting of, of, of fatalities due to a disease. So when you start to take that into account, yeah, this, this was a bad pandemic. And, and we need to very much after this appreciate um, and, and certainly take stock of what happened um, and how quickly it happened. To me, th- those are the lessons that if we don't learn those now, we are absolutely doomed to uh, to ultimately repeat the same mistakes. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I see on social media, I'm sure you see that as well, um, you know, people just having award ceremonies and weddings indoors yeah. and, and parties and concerts. And, you know, but I also see on, on the receiving end is is patients calling me uh, diagnosed with COVID. They don't know what to do. They yeah. don't know where to turn. They're getting very sick. Some of them are boosted as well. And they're, they're getting significantly ill. They're not 
going to the hospital necessarily, but I had one patient, she was about 47 years old and she felt that her throat was paralyzed. She was boosted. Yep. Um, you know, she, that, which is a very scary experience. And there's a lot of chest congestion, congestion, a lot of people who have asthma, a lot of runners seem to have asthma, yep. you know, people who have said they've never gotten their energy back. And so I, I think still we can't be too careful. And it, it you know, I want to go to a party more than anybody. <laughs> I am like yeah. the life of the party <laughs> and I have missed them desperately. But um, anyway, is there hope for the future, Dr. Kidrachuk? Will I ever go to a party again? <laughs> yes. Listen, pandemics always end. That's the thing that we do need to appreciate is that we, we will come out of this. The, the time it takes for us to do that is really contingent on, first of all, when we get the rest of the globe vaccinated, um, but also dependent on how we learn from additional variants that continue to, to pop up and how we react. So I, we, we will make it out of this. I think it's going to be a bigger question of the toll that it takes uh, in the time frame for, uh, for that end to come. That's wonderful. Well, at least there's some hope on the horizon. Dr. Kendrachuk, <laughs> once again, thank you so much for your wisdom. Really appreciate it. And, you know, sometimes I feel like there's nobody in my court about COVID and prevention, but you're there every Sunday night. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Maureen. We're going to shift gears a little bit. We're going to talk about a subject that is critical to both men, women, and they. Approximately three out of four sexually active Canadians will get at least one HPV infection in their lifetime. That's a human papillomavirus infection. However, recent data demonstrated that only 56% of Canadian men know what HPV is compared to 69% of women. Joining me on the line to discuss this is Dr. Vivian Brown. She's a family physician, well-known international speaker, and the best-selling author of A Woman's Guide to Healthy Aging. She's active in numerous organizations, including as vice president of the North America for the Medical Women's International Association. She's also past president of the Federation of Medical Women of Canada, former chair of the Consumer Education Committee for the North American Menopause Society, board member of the Women's Brain Health Initiative, and she has participated on several provincial and federal advisory boards, including Immunize Canada. Good evening, Dr. Brown. Hi, Maureen. So nice to be here with you. Oh, it's so nice to have you. And of course, that is quite the impressive resume you have. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. I'm not sure when you sleep. I really appreciate you coming on to talk about this very important subject. And we marked International HPV Awareness Day on March 4th. But but I like to carry on these topics beyond their kind of international awareness days because, you know, we have these awareness days, but people may forget about them. So I really appreciate you joining me on the program to talk about HPV or human papillomavirus. So can you tell me exactly what human pap human papillomavirus or HPV is? Sure. So as you mentioned, HPV is a virus and it's a common virus. It's been known for a long time. About 75 to 80% of sexually active Canadians will get HPV at one point in their lifetime. But most of us clear the virus the way we clear a common cold. The problem is about 20% of us don't clear the virus and end up with persistent HPV. And persistent HPV has now been linked to six different kinds of cancers in both men and women. In women, it's cervical cancer, vulvar, vaginal cancer, anal cancer, and some head and neck cancers or mouth cancers. 
in men, it's penile cancer, anal cancer, and head and neck or mouth cancers. And so this is a virus that we now know leads to a cancer, not just an infection, but a cancer. And what's so exciting is we've got a fantastic vaccine that can prevent HPV and thus prevent a cancer. A vaccine. That's the, <laughs> that is such a controversial word, especially during the pandemic, but we know how important that is. And, you know, something about the pandemic that I had heard was that a lot of things like surgeries were delayed uh, and people weren't getting into their doctor's offices to be examined, but also some of the preventive programs that occur in schools, for example, where they uh, uh, inoculate girls and boys against HPV weren't happening. Is that exactly. true? And if and what impact does that have on people? Well, we're very privileged in Canada. In every province and territory, there is a school-based program to immunize boys and girls against HPV. It's generally done in the younger ages, grade 6, grade 7, something like that, so that as they get older, as they get exposed to HPV, they will be protected against these cancers. It was the Stephen Harper government years ago that gave money to every province to set a program in place. We then added boys to the program. So now every province and territory has a program. The problem is with the pandemic, there's been no school or there's been virtual school. And so the programs have been on hold because public health has been overwhelmed with the issues around COVID. And really what that means is that the kids who were supposed to get vaccine in 2020 or 20, uh, yeah, uh, fall of 2020 missed that vaccine. They've missed it in 2021 and now we're in 2022. So these kids are two or three years older and have missed getting vaccine that they were entitled to get. And we know that the uh, most equitable, equitable way to get vaccine into the community is through a school-led system. And so it's really um, an issue in that we've got kids who have missed vaccine for, for no reason, really. I mean, for no valid medical reason, except that public health has been too busy. So we have a crisis to catch up in terms of getting these kids vaccinated because the kids that were in grade seven in Ontario, for example, now in grade nine are, are getting to the age group where they may be again exposed to HPV. So they won't have quite as much benefit as they would have a year or two ago. Right, exactly. Now, is it mandatory to get the HPV vaccine? No, it's optional. Um, you know, the mandatory vaccines are, are different in different provinces. There's a number of vaccines that you need by age five in order to enter the school system. The HPV vaccine is optional, but I think if parents and teachers and students understand what this is about, it really becomes so clear cut. You are preventing a cancer. You know, when polio vaccine was first launched, it, it wasn't mandatory. And, you know, people were afraid of the vaccine until there were more cases of polio and people understood how valuable the vaccine was. So it isn't mandatory, it is an option, but it's being offered without out-of-pocket out of costs. I mean, we, we pay with our taxes, but for the individual, their kid, boy or girl, uh, man or woman, can get immunized, which is just so important. And, and the rates have fallen, you know, in, in Ontario, the rates were in 
about 65% in 2019, which is not as good as we would like, but 65%. In 2020, it dropped to 5%. In 2021, wow. it's dropped to under 1%. So parents oh don't goodness. know that their kids have missed. Parents don't know. They don't know what their kids have missed. And, wow. uh, and, and I'm so- that's going to end up leading to cancers as time goes on. And I'm so glad you're on the air tonight to talk about this and educate parents. I had a, a young woman in my office about 26 years of age, and she had heard from her friends uh, who had all received the HPV vaccine when they were, you know, in age 11 and 12. And she did not receive it at age 11 and 12. And she said that her mother was against it because her mother felt that if she got the HPV vaccine, she would become sexually active sooner than uh, the mother would like, I guess. So right. Um, right. what is the, what's the evidence around that? And, um, and again, it's just important to educate parents uh, about this because they are actually giving permission for their children. But, but does get receipt of the HPV vaccine lead to uh, earlier sexual activity? It's a great question, and it's uh, really wonderful that there has been research in this area, and it's actually just the reverse. By educating young people and by immunizing young people, they are less likely to be sexually active, and we're seeing sexually active infections dropping in the group that has been immunized, and there's some really good data out of the U.S. that shows that. The other thing that we know... And why is that? Oh, Because they've been educated. No, it's a great question, Maureen. They've been educated. (laughs) They understand what they're being exposed to, and they make good choices. So what we would say is that really there's no better time than now to be immunized. But when you look at different age groups, the vaccine is approved in Canada for up to age 45 by Health Canada for all both genders, men and women, boys and girls. But our national guidelines say there's no upper age limit. So for older people, if they're going to be exposed, if they're going to have a new partner, if their situation has changed, you're never too old to get this vaccine either. So I I think it's just uh, really remarkable that in our lifetime, we we will see and have the opportunity to most likely eliminate a cancer. And, And that's just really so exciting in medicine to think that we understand now where cervical cancer comes from and that we've got the tools to eliminate this cancer as a killer of women. My guest is Dr. Vivian Brown. She's the past president of the Federation of Medical Women of Canada, and she's here to remind people of the importance of HPV prevention or human papillomavirus prevention, regardless of the sex, sexuality, or relationship status. Thank you so much for staying on the line, Dr. Brown. We were talking about HPV, and I was wondering if for the listeners you could uh, advise them what the symptoms of an HPV virus, uh, what are the symptoms of HPV in women? Well, typically, Maureen, there are no symptoms. What we do when we do a pap test is we're doing screening for the secondary effect of HPV. And by that, I mean we're looking for abnormalities in the pap test where we know that HPV is the virus that causes these abnormalities. But there is no screening available to men. We don't do routine testing of your throat or anal area or penile area looking for HPV because there are no symptoms. 
Now, HPV can also cause warts, and those are visible, but the subtypes of HPV that cause warts do not go on to cancers. So when you get vaccinated, you're protected against warts as well, uh, but it's the oncogenic or cancer-causing subtypes of HPV that we're really worried about. So pap tests tell us you've had HPV, but you have picked it up when you didn't know it, and you have had it without knowing it, and you're passing it without knowing it. And you could actually get cancer without knowing it. Exactly. Essentially. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So what what would be some of the uh, symptoms of HPV and cancer? So what what would cause be cause for concern for women? Well, well, first of all, there are some things you can do to reduce your risk of infection. So you know, we we tell people to use condoms. That doesn't protect you from every HPV virus, but it does reduce your risk of infection. We know that smoking is a cofactor that makes things worse, and we know that vaccination protects you. But when you have symptoms that are out of the ordinary, for example, bleeding after intercourse or pain or uh, bleeding at um, irregular times, that can be evidence that there's something abnormal in the cervical area. We do pap tests routinely in Canada every three years in women after age 25. And what we're hoping is that we will pick up early signs of cancer and be able to treat it before it becomes very aggressive. But if you're concerned, if you have an unusual symptom, if you've had bleeding after, after sex, if you've had unusual pain, by all means, go to your doctor. And, and I'm going to be a, a little absolute here. I'm going to say don't settle for a virtual appointment. You want to go to your doctor and have a proper exam so that if there is something that doesn't look right, the doctor can see it, can sample it, can do a pap test, can send you to the appropriate specialist. You know, we're, we're about a million tests behind in Ontario in terms of mammograms and pap tests and colon cancer screening. And it's going to take a couple of years to catch up because we're a couple of years behind. And I do encourage people to see their doctor in person if they're having unusual symptoms. That's just an amazing statistic. I have a couple of text messages that have come in here. One of them is, uh, Dear Dr. Brown, thank you so much for the information you're giving right now on the program. Do I need to get an HPV vaccine if I am married? Great question. So thank you to this listener. The issue is that you may have been exposed to HPV years ago. Your body may have fought it off the way I said about 80% of us fight off the virus and your body may have suppressed it. But what we see with aging is our immune system is not as robust. Our immune system gets weaker. So we do see cervical cancer in women in their 30s and 40s and then we see a second peak of cervical cancer in women in their 60s and 70s. So I think there's a benefit for everybody to consider getting immunized because we don't know what's going to happen in the future. We don't know if you're going to be with your partner right now or a different partner or something may happen in your situation. And the younger you are when you are immunized, the better your immune system responds. So I think it's something for you and your partner to discuss and discuss it with your family doctor. Now, I'm biased, Maureen. I am a family doctor, and I talk about this all the time. I think it's really an important decision to think about how to protect yourself and your partner as well as your children. 
Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. That is an excellent point. I have another text message that has come in. Question for the doctor. Do men need to get an HPV vaccine? Lily in Ontario. The answer is absolutely yes. Men risk for oral cancers and oral cancers are on the rise, HPV being the number one cause of oral cancers. You know, years ago, it was smoking and drinking that caused oral cancers. But what we're seeing now is an exponential rise of oral cancers. We know that penile cancer, anal cancer are all HPV related cancers. And not only that, if a man is carrying HPV, he's spreading it to his partner, male or female. So by getting immunized, you're protecting yourself but you're also protecting your partner. And I just want to say, sometimes in a marriage, you know, there can be issues going on and and people can go outside of the marriage. We talk about extramarital affairs on this program. Um, Is HPV highly contagious? Yeah, it's very contagious. And again, you don't know if you've been exposed. So sometimes someone will come into the office and say, you know, my partner and I have not been getting along. We've had other partners. Can you screen me for all sexually transmitted diseases? And I need to explain to that person, male or female, that I can test for gonorrhea and chlamydia. I can do a VDRL, a blood test for syphilis. I can take a look and see if there's any evidence of herpes. But in general, there's no screening test for HPV. So when you go to the physician or you go to a a sexually transmitted disease clinic and you say, yeah, test me for everything, I'll do a blood test for HIV, you're not getting screened for HPV. That's not part of that routine testing. And people don't understand that and they think, okay, I'm clear, I'm clear of everything. And that's not the case. It's it's just incredible. I have another um, text message from a listener who is wondering if HPV can be transmitted from from a woman to a man, and vice versa? Yes, we transmit it orally, we transmit it vaginally, we transmit it back and forth to each other. And so we want to protect... skin to skin as well? Skin to skin. That's unfortunately why condoms don't work perfectly, and that's because you can have HPV through intimate contact, even if you're not having intercourse. So just moisture can cause... HPV on your fingertips to be in one area or another area. Dr. Brown, what is the most important message? We've just got about 30 seconds left. What would you like to say to the listeners out there? Well, first of all, congratulations for talking about this because I think more education is just so important. And so thank you, Maureen, and thank you to your listeners for being on. But I think the way my grandmother taught me, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. We, we can help people with cervical cancer. There's all kinds of treatments. That is but we still excellent lose information. One woman a day. It's vaccine that counts. Oh, it's so terrible. And, you know, prevention is critical to good health and longevity. Dr. Vivian Brown, family physician, well-known international speaker. Congratulations on your great book, A Woman's Guide to Healthy Aging. And thank you for all the work that you do around women's and men's health as well. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.